The scripture lesson today, as I mentioned in my prayer and earlier in the service, comes from Luke 12. I'll begin reading at verse 49 and continue through verse 56. Prepare your hearts and minds for a challenging word from Jesus. I came to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it was already ablaze. I have a baptism I must experience. How I am distressed until it's completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, I have come instead to bring division. From now on, a household of five will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will square off against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud forming in the west, you immediately say, It's going to rain, and indeed it does. And when a south wind blows, you say, a heat wave is coming, and it does. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret conditions on earth and in the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? Here ends this reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Interpreting the present time, it seems, has become a multi-million dollar business. There are experts making huge salaries to examine trends and then tell us, for example, what the color of the year will be. The Pantone Color Institute announced prior to the beginning of this year that the 2019 color of the year, anyone know? Uh-uh, not according to them, uh-uh, no, no. Living coral. Now, it looks like a slightly lighter salmon color to me, but shockingly, no one called to ask me what the color of the year would be. In the food world, we should be on the alert for oat milk, we're told. There is no silent G on the front end of oat milk, just so you avoid any milk mishaps. And also, we are told to be on the lookout for vegan jerky. Now, my guess is that we may have sharp differences of opinion, on these color choices and even vegan jerky or other foods. Now, thanks to the wonders of Facebook this past week, I witnessed an 85-year-old woman who is a member of, of a church I used to serve as pastor post a Facebook status that read as follows. I would like to buy some homegrown tomatoes from someone. My heirloom-growing expert relative forgot me. If you have some, please reply and we will arrange pricing and pickup. Now, first of all, it's remarkable that an 85-year-old woman knows how to use Facebook at all, let alone to use it in order to find fresh tomatoes from those in her social media circles. But what makes this story all the more fascinating to me is that I knew precisely which heirloom tomato growing expert she was talking about because he was a member of my church too, her 60-year-old son. <laughs> Now, this was a very close-knit, loving family, and in a playful yet obviously shocked tone, her physician's son commented below on her status, calling me out on Facebook, Mom, really? What a cruel, cold world we live in. 
Now, not having these homegrown tomatoes was going to interfere with her favorite lunch staple this time of year, BLT sandwiches with fresh homegrown heirloom tomatoes. I bet her son doesn't forget next year. Now, did you notice in the text we read a moment ago from Luke's Gospel that Luke reports that Jesus said families would have deep divisions? I think he probably had something deeper in mind than tomatoes. I would venture to say that all of the gospel texts that are offered to preachers who use the Revised Common Lectionary of all the texts, the Revised Common Lectionary is a worship tool for churches and pastors that follows the Christian calendar and ensures that the bulk of the Bible is covered approximately every three years. And this particular text from Luke's gospel comes up every three years, and I would be willing to say that most preachers have avoided this. To be honest, this is the first time in 20 or more years I've preached it. It's terrifying at a glance, at a peripheral level. It's terrifying because, you know, I was trained to believe that the gospel of Jesus should be good news. And if the gospel of Jesus isn't good news for all people, then it's some other gospel. What is the good news in this text? That bothers me as I think about it. But as I look a little bit more closely, I had to admit that it really has more to do with our modern ears than it does with what's going on in the story and what people would have understood. There's a lot going on in this text that may not sound like good news, but this is mostly because we are separated some 2,000 years from the context. You see, Jesus is not talking about fire being cast upon the earth to burn it up like a fiery hell. But rather, Jesus is using fire as a metaphor for the process of refining the way we live our shared lives together in the, in the larger, wider culture. Even fa- in fact, even today, when a farmer or rancher intentionally burns a field at the right time of year, they're not burning the field to destroy it, but rather they're burning away the brush and the chaff so that there will be more room for nutritious grass to grow back in its place. And at first glance, the portion of this text where Jesus speaks of division as opposed to peace is alarming to those of us who carry around a meek and mild mental image of Jesus. You know, many of us carry around an image of Jesus who who plays with children ever so gently in his spare time and all the while offering a therapeutic, calming, privatized religion whose primary goal is inner peace among his faithful who are actually seeking inner peace in order to withdraw from all the noise and the conflict of the world while remaining as neutral as possible in the world's struggles against evil. So indeed, this text may actually be bad news, I suppose, for people who assume that Jesus' message requires nothing from those of us who claim to be his followers. But this text is actually very good news for those who wish to engage in the world's struggles against evil. For those who choose to engage and act faithfully because of their faith, this text offers a wonderful opportunity to make a tremendous difference in this world of ours. Jesus is saying it requires an ability and a willingness, if we're to make a difference, to interpret the present time, the time in which we live. Now, the Greek word here for time is a fascinating word. There are other words used for time in the New Testament, but the word here is one of the most foreign to our modern ears and minds. 
The word used for time here in Greek is the word kairos. Kairos time is not like the kind of time that is linear and can be measured on a watch or these days on the face of a smartphone in minutes and seconds. When biblical authors use the word kairos, which is used here for the word time, they were actually speaking of a window of opportunity with the potential for the action of some kind to be taken by the faithful. So what Jesus was doing in this text is nothing out of the ordinary for the rest of his ministry, you see. He's offering a choice to would-be disciples. During this kairos moment, the window of opportunity we either, as disciples of Jesus today, as well as those listening then, can choose to follow the path of conventional wisdom, the dominant culture, that is, or the alternative path of wisdom we call the way of Jesus. Modern followers of Jesus are called to wrestle with this question, I believe, today. Conventional wisdom versus the way of Jesus. Conventional wisdom says that the wealthy and the famous, they naturally get the places of honor. But the way of Jesus says that the least among us are actually the greatest. Conventional wisdom says to love those who love us the most, but the way of Jesus says, uh-uh, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Conventional wisdom says that law and order are the only ways to maintain an orderly society, but the way of Jesus says loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves is the best summary of all the law and the prophets. Conventional wisdom says earn all you can while you still can and can the rest, but the way of Jesus says sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Conventional wisdom says, surround yourself with strong allies and cover your own tail feathers. But the way of Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Conventional wisdom says, all is fair in love and war. But the way of Jesus said, take your swords and beat them into plowshares and get busy feeding people instead of fighting people. My friends, the allure of conventional wisdom is so incredibly strong. Conventional wisdom has penetrated and impermeated the, the air we breathe and the water that we drink. Conventional wisdom has infiltrated the politics we so passionately argue about in the political partisan sense. Conventional wisdom has penetrated the minds of the faithful and made its home even inside the church among those of us who hunger for power, turning even fellow Christians against one another. But rather than lamenting the conflict, I think Jesus was saying that the rising level of conflict proves that there are still people of faith, of good conscience, who have not surrendered to conventional wisdom and who are actually still interested in the way of Jesus. Now, if you haven't noticed, we're in a bit of a crisis. Now, I'm not talking about just the world. I'm also talking about inside the church. Walter Brueggemann has put it this way, the crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being either liberal or conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the faith and discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. Ouch.
Jesus says in this passage from Luke's gospel that there will be division and discord because for those willing to critique conventional wisdom, they will often be met with conflict. And for too long, Christians have made an idol out of this thing we call unity. We pray for unity. We strive for unity. We love the concept of of unity, but what Jesus is saying here is that unity at any cost is not peace but idolatry. That unity for the sake of unity is not something Jesus would be interested in, but rather unity, when it can be found, should be centered in justice. Now that's the concept Jesus was trying to promote, so for those who dare to follow in the way of Jesus today, we must be willing to critique the teams for which we play. What do I mean? Our own families, our own teams. We must be willing to critique our own political parties. We must be willing to critique our own churches, our own groups, by a higher standard than conventional wisdom. By the very highest standard of all for Christians, which is the way of Jesus. And the question, by the way, should never be, what would Jesus do? But rather, what would Jesus have us do? And what would Jesus have me do? This, my friends, is the frightening call of this gospel lesson today. Interpreting the present times requires courage and a willingness to critique ourselves, our politics, our religion, our hopes and dreams, our fears and failures, our families, our government, the state, the nation, the systems at play around us by a higher ethic than conventional wisdom. We must offer honest critique in the way of Jesus of every part of life by comparing it to the best understanding we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, there are some steps involved, and without overly simplifying, interpreting the present time, what Jesus was instructing followers to do, I think would require that we survey the landscape of the time in which we live, and we make some honest observations, and we ask some honest questions. Interpreting the present time requires us to look carefully at our observations and ask, is this in harmony with the way of Jesus, and if not, what work needs to be done in order to fix it. Interpreting the present time might mean that we pray about the work that needs to be done, but friends, it doesn't end there because it's hypocritical to pray for something that we have no intention of helping solve when we say amen and are done praying. We pray, but we should pray for the strength and the wisdom to do the work, and then we should act. This is what Jesus meant when he challenged the Pharisees and told them that their religion had become detached from the world's greatest challenges and needs. And he challenged them with the words we're talking about. You must interpret the present time, the kairos moment you've been given to act. You must discern your window of opportunity to realign this world with your understanding of the way of Jesus. Now, I meet... Far too, now listen closely. I meet far too many Americans who just happen to be Christians today in church life. Did you catch what I'm saying? I meet far too many Democrats and Republicans who just happen to be Christians today in the church. Do you, 
Are you on to where I'm going with this? I mean, far too many Christians who are so immersed in conventional wisdom that they confuse it for the way of Jesus. As people who follow the way of Jesus, we're called to interpret the present time in which we live. And this means we must be able to critique America by way of a Christian ethic. And it means we must be able to critique the Republican or the Democratic Party by a higher moral standard, the way of Jesus. And interpreting the present time means we must be keenly aware of the current events and critique them not by our national interests, not by our partisan interests, but by the way of Jesus. For the gospel of Jesus is not meant to sit on a shelf in a crusty, dusty old book until we go looking for it. The gospel of Jesus is to be lived out and is to be our lens through which we witness the current events of our present time while we're making plans to respond faithfully and lead the way towards a better place, a better world for all people. So interpreting the present time means that everything is on the table. Nothing is outside the hot, fiery critique of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which burns away both the patriotic and partisan lenses of conventional wisdom and leaves us instead with the heart of things that matter the very most in this world. Patriotic and partisan conventional wisdom says, hey, I got an idea. Let's get on the internet and argue about gun control and immigration. The gospel of Jesus says, and stands apart from our two-party system, and says, in your arguing, what are you doing to ensure that these precious little children of mine are cared for and protected? Let the little children come unto me, for the kingdom of God belongs to them, and you would be better off if you had a millstone tied around your neck and were hurled into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble because you're busy arguing. Patriotic and, and partisan conventional wisdom says, hey, I got an idea. Let's get on the internet and let's argue about economic systems and how we can ensure a booming economy. And the gospel of Jesus stands apart in disgust from our partisan bickering and says, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? I have come to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed. And in my name, you can do even greater things. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he used a family to illustrate that following him would cause divisions. The moment we become unwilling to critique our own tribe, our own family, our own team, our own country, our own group, our own political party, by the way of Jesus, we are no longer living out the gospel of Jesus and his dream for the world of seeking first a higher kingdom, the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And we may be living someone else's dream, but it's not, it doesn't belong to Jesus when we become consumed with these things. The moment we surrender our moral compass to whatever is best for the economy or to the talking points of my particular partisan political party, we've given up the moral center of our faith. Walter Rauschenbusch framed our dilemma well when he said, in a few years, all our restless and angry hearts will be quiet in death, but those who come after us 
will live in the world which our sins have blighted or which our love of right has redeemed. We have a Kairos moment, dear ones, a window of opportunity for our present time to act faithfully based on what we know about the world we live in and based on what we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to live out our faith and to live it faithfully. Let us not seek first the American response, although we happen to all be Americans the last time I checked for the most part. Let us not seek first the Democratic or the Republican response, though most of us would probably fall into one camp or the other. Let us not seek first the capitalist response, though we live in a capitalist society. Let us seek to respond to this Kairos moment in time as those who have given tremendous thought and care to what Jesus would have us to do at this crucial intersection of time and faith with the most pressing matters before us. We should expect some discord, Jesus said. We should expect some division. But if we act courageously, if we act in love, working for justice, striving to build a better world, not just for some of us, but for all of us, we will be on the right side of history along with all of those who took the risks of faithfully interpreting their own present time. May God grant us strength and wisdom for faithful action in this Kairos moment. Amen.